Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel. Today it was my privilege to continue our series of Advent messages, today looking at the subject of God's love. Let's get started. Before we get started, let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of your love for us, your grace and mercy toward us. Lord, we ask that you would work in these feeble words, that the name of Jesus might be exalted here, and that everyone who hears may truly hear of your incredible love as you revealed it to us in Jesus. And to you, Father, be all the praise and the glory and the honor in his precious name. Amen. That God is love is an important concept in Scripture. But as I was thinking about this, I realized in all of the recorded evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts, the love of God is not once directly referenced. The nearest I could find is that Peter indicated that as a result of um, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, he said in, in Acts 3, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. But you start thinking about concepts like love and what is it? What is it really? Well, most of our friends would define love as a feeling of affection. And unfortunately, feelings come and go. And not infrequently, a young person will mistake sexual lust for love. Gordon Lightfoot put it this way quite a number of years ago. I never thought I could act this way, and I've got to say it. I just don't get it. I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone, and I can't. I just can't get it back. The question is what Lightfoot and many other artists sang about. Is that really love? The shorter Oxford Dictionary defines love as that state of feeling with regard to a person which arises from recognition of attractive qualities, from sympathy, or from natural ties, and manifests itself in warm affection and attachment. But there is far more to genuine love than mere 
emotion. The, the classic description in 1 Corinthians 13, for example. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, in all that list of attributes, where is the state of feeling that manifests itself in warm affection? I don't see it. But every one of the attributes in that poem, every one requires a deliberate, conscious choice and a decision to act in a certain way, even when circumstance and society would suggest that a reasonable response would be to the contrary. And most of these expressions of love are difficult. They require a great deal of effort because we naturally want our own way. We want others to serve us. But our use of the word love is so varied that perhaps... I have mischaracterized it by restricting consideration to the love between a man and a woman. After all, we say we love our kids, we love our friends, we love our dog, or our boat, or our favorite hunting rifle. We may even love the work we do. So what does the scripture mean when we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When I did a concordance search for the word love in the Old Testament, I was surprised at how few direct references there are to the love of God in the Old Testament and that there are fewer places still where God describes himself as loving, with the possible exception of the Psalms. But in Exodus 34, um, get there. Exodus 34 and verse 6. Um, God describes himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will bow others on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, that's pretty stiff. 
And then about 40 years later, Moses gave expression uh, to some of the lessons he had learned, lessons that the nation of Israel had been taught along the way. And in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, he said, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays their, to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him he will repay him to his face, and you shall be therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The love of God draws an answering love from thousands of generations of those who are his by faith. Now, I am in awe of the love of God and I do not understand why I, of all people, should be included among God's people. But here, Moses answers my question. Did you hear it? Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. But it is because the Lord loves you. So the answer to my why is that God loves because God loves. His response to my wondering is effectively, don't bother answering. Don't bother asking. Because there is no why. At least none that a mere mortal could possibly understand. And as the Old Testament developed and the saints of God reflected on his nature, they realized that God's love is both indescribable and limitless. One favorite Hebrew word uh, that is used to describe the relationship of God to his people is chesed, which is frequently translated as loving kindness or faithfulness or steadfast love, or mercy. You see why my, con my concordance search didn't yield very much. In most cases, especially in the Psalms, I prefer the translation covenant-keeping love because God binds himself to his people. 
fast forward to the New Testament, and we we read in First John, First John, chapter four. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The reason that God loves, the reason he loves even you, and me is that God is love. And that brings us back to our, our primary text for this morning. Text you don't even need to turn to, although I will. Is John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that's probably the most widely recognizable text from the Bible. But what does it really mean? Now, as usual, we need to be aware of the context of this passage. And the context for us will begin with uh, chapter 2 and verse 23. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And one of those who believed in his name at that time was Nicodemus. Nicodemus believed but was not yet a recipient of God's salvation. When he came to Jesus by night, he knew that Jesus was God's messenger, but not that Jesus was his redeemer. And he had not yet received that incredible gift of salvation. His discussion that night with Jesus 
brought him face to face with the living God, possibly for the first time. But as a result of that encounter, Nicodemus would never be the same. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's something of a summary of Jesus' teaching of the teacher of Israel that night, and it all starts with God, because the initiative must start with him. He alone knows the truth of our situation. Remember, he is the creator of all, and we, his creatures, are responsible to him. He's given us instruction in right living, and he holds us morally responsible. Because the living God is absolutely righteous, he is the final judge of all. And in his court, every one of us stands condemned. Anything we might do or say in the attempt to justify ourselves before him will only serve to underline our guilt and the pride that is so offensive to him. And that brings us to the very reason for the season. Read that verse again. What was the righteous judge doing that first Christmas? Look at the words, should not perish. The whole point of God's intervention that first Christmas was to rescue us from ourselves. Because we are doomed to eternal separation from him. And, interestingly and incidentally, he is doomed to eternal separation from us. He had to do something. So Jesus came mission. And when we read verse 17, the purpose is clear. We had already condemned ourselves. Someone said, the door to hell is locked on the inside. It's our own choices and actions that convict us. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world because we had already done that for ourselves. But there's another thread that we need to pull before we can grasp the importance of the God so loved the world. And that's to look at the word, the word perish. The Greek word that stands behind the English word is also frequently translated destroy or lose. For example, one time when Jesus was teaching in Capernaum, 
He made the observation that the new covenant could not be contained within the traditions of the old. And uh, as he was teaching, he said, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. Here, our word is translated destroyed. The wineskins don't die. They're not annihilated. But they split under the pressure of fermentation and become useless garbage. When Jesus was on a retreat, as it were, with the earliest disciples near Caesarea Philippi, he taught them, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here the word is translated, lose. So, to perish, then, means to lose true life. To forfeit eternal life. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose, there's our word, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be, what? Thrown into hell. Again, our word is translated lose. And the word translated hell is Gehenna. Or the Valley of Henna, the, the Jerusalem garbage dump. An illustration of the final destination of those who refuse to receive the mercy and the grace of God. We don't throw non-existent things into a garbage dump. We throw the ruined, the useless stuff into the dump. Back to John 3.16. In our passage, the contrast is between perish and to have eternal life. Again, there's far more to the phrase than we can see on the surface. Now that we understand the word perish to mean ruined and no longer of any use, we can better appreciate the words eternal life. Life in the scripture is to be understood as not merely existence in contrast to non-existence. But life is in contrast to ruin and uselessness. And so life is usefulness, abundance, joy, completeness. And eternal life is with and for and in the presence of the eternal God himself. One preacher put it this way. In John 17, Jesus begins his final high priestly prayer to the Father before he went to the cross. And he's praying for us. As he begins his prayer, he says in verse 3, This is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And that sentence is the key. Jesus shows us here that eternal life is not just an it's not just a quantity of time that is forever, but a quality of timelessness that you're with God, knowing Him, amazed by His beauty, wondering at His glory, tasting the delights of His presence. In Psalm 16:11, David says, In your right hand there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's revealed presence is what makes eternal life, eternal life. Glory, rejoicing, receiving pleasures from God, just being with Him. The greatest pleasures, the greatest thrills, the greatest joys you've ever known are nothing compared to heaven. That is the greatest destination. God so loved. The word that stands behind that little word, so, is one that is difficult to translate into good English. So, in English, we easily slide over the word and somehow misplace its meaning. So, we read the phrase almost as if it said, God loved the world, so he gave his only son. But that's not what it means. The Greek adverb indicates an intensity of love such that we might better translate the phrase as God so dearly, so intensely, so passionately loved and prized the world that he gave his only son. Try to get your, get your hands around, your head around that. In spite of our betrayals of his trust, in spite of our destruction of all his previous good gifts, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our self-centeredness, God loves us passionately, intensely. And God's giving of His only begotten Son was and is the only possible remedy to our situation. There was no other solution. And God gave His only Son knowing that we would turn on Him and publicly crucify Him. But in the incredible economy of God, He would turn even that humiliation and disgrace into victory. And there would be a glorious resurrection. Because Jesus Christ is now risen from the grave, 
Even now He serves as our high priest before the Father, offering His own blood as the more than sufficient sacrifice for your sin and for mine. But this verse screams at us that we can't blame God if we fail to receive eternal life. He chose to redeem us at an infinite cost to Himself. It's now up to us to choose to receive that, self, that redemption or not. The stakes are higher than any of us can properly appreciate. So we need to be sure of our standing before God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But belief in Him is not merely giving assent to the historical existence of Jesus, or to the historicity of the crucifixion, or even in the resurrection, or even to the expectation of the soon return of Jesus. Nicodemus could have qualified as a believer on that basis. Rather, to believe in Him is to trust Him with your life. Or Jesus to look after us, both in, the life, in life in the here and now and in death. We'll find Him to be more than trustworthy. He'll take our small, trembling trust and transform us into joyfully willing participants in the greatest adventure ever. So if you haven't, make your choice today. As God has given so much for you, give Him your love your trust, and you'll receive all the more from Him. And that is the true meaning of Christmas. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Our giving of gifts at Christmas and at other times is a reflection of our love for the recipient of those gifts. But it is only a very dim reflection of the love of God for us. 1 John 3 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. 
because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, your love is way beyond our grasp. All we can do, Lord, is say thank you and give you our feeble, trembling love and trust. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us Help us to trust you the more, especially given that your, your great love for us. And to you, may we bring praise and honor and glory because of Jesus, because of your great love. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.